Good morning. I always consider it a privilege coming to speak before you, and um, I'm always amazed that I'm asked back, but um, I've been looking forward to coming to share God's Word. If you have your Bible, please open it up to John chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of John chapter 10. John writes this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father, it is such a privilege for us to come and to open your word. For there we get to see how you chose to reveal yourself to mankind in human history. For if it was only verbally, it would end there with one person hearing it and trying to pass it on. But through your spirit, we have your revealed word in one place, written over a 1,500-year period of time through men in which you have worked within their heart to write it down so we can open it up so the Spirit of God can speak to our hearts whether or not it is to convict, whether or not it's to teach, whether or not it's to exhort. It is there for us to see you in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, and to see how we can glorify you in our life by having our life changed from the time in which we spend here. So, Father, we ask that you can speak to each one of us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember growing up, it was me and my brother. And there was a time to where if my brother wanted to come and talk to me, my bedroom door would be open. And if it was closed, it means I need my private time. I need my own time. And so if he were to come in when my door was closed, it was like, my, my door's closed. I, I don't want to see you right now. But when it's open, which was like most, most of the time, it was, uh, it was an opportunity for, uh, for him to come and to talk with me. And so my door was, was a time to where it gave him access for him to come in and to do whatever he wanted to do with me. And so, so that door was very important. It was a sign. It, it, was, it, it was a symbol whether or not I wanted to be with him. And doors for each one of us are a main part of our lives whether, whether we know it or not. For here we have a brand new front door to where when I came in the, the other month I said, wow, that's a sharp looking door. Doors give access to what is on the other side. It provides a means of entrance. And so each one of our houses, it has a door. 
And you just can't come in whenever you want. You have to ring the doorbell if you go over someone else's home. But not only does the door give access, it also keeps danger from coming in. Doors are very important. Doors is a passageway in which one can enter and to go into another, another sphere. You may not know, but there are very famous doors of the world. In the film world, if you ever saw The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, and Bilbo's home had that big green door, and when I first saw that on the big screen, it was like, that's a cool door. It's round. Don't always see a round door. It was unique. It stood out. It was the entrance to Bilbo's home. There are many famous political doors. For one that sort of stands out was, um, is the Black Door at 10 Downing Street in London. For the prime minister there comes out of his home and gives speeches right in front of the Black Door often. It seems to be one of those rituals. I was trying to think at uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, if I've ever saw that door, I don't think a speech has ever been given in front of that one. So I couldn't use that as in my illustration. But there are very famous political doors. There are many famous religious doors. And the famous one that comes to my mind is All Saints Church in Wittenberg. Because there on October 31st, 1517, it was that door where Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to where it was the beginning of the Reformation, to where it just moved the church into a direction that God wanted to move it. And so there are many famous doors that are out there. And though I've never walked through any of those famous doors, there is one famous door that I have walked through that we're going to be discussing here in this passage. It is the door of the sheep. It is the only door that actually matters. And here within this passage, we continue our time uh, in, uh, in John in which we are and have been looking at those seven great I am statements that Jesus has given that are found in the Gospel of John. As John begins to write his book, he writes it so that people would read it and believe. That is his thrust, that he wanted to put Jesus on display, and he does so by combining seven miracles that he had performed, and then um, intertwined in it, he gives us seven great I am statements. We've already seen two of them. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he says that I am the light of the world. Here in John chapter 10, he is going to say, I am the door of the sheep. He's also going to say here in this passage, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, he is going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he's going to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the last one is found in John chapter 15, where he says, I am the true vine. Each one of these statements are great, not only because it gives us a, uh, a way in which the Lord uses as an evangelistic passage, uh, passage so that people can read it and believe, but also for the believer already, it's an opportunity for us to deepen our love and our affection for what the Lord has done for us. Because with each one of these statements, we, we can tend to forget how great our Lord and what he has accomplished um, through his earthly ministry and then how, how that continues into his heavenly ministry. And so these seven statements are profound in its implications. And here he's going to say that I am the door of the sheep. And so we find this in verse 7 to where it says that Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. At first, that seems like a very basic statement. 
But it is a profound statement because he is very clearly drawing a line in the sand to where its hearers knew exactly what he was saying and what he was um, implying. But as we come to this passage, there are four things about the, that you need to know about the context to help you understand things that are going on. First of all, in this section, we actually have two I am statements back to back. And so in verse 7, we have I am the door. And then within that same context, in verse 11, he is going to say that I am the good shepherd. Each one stands alone, but each one builds upon the previous one. Secondly, you need to know the audience that he is talking to. If you look at verse 7 once again, it says that Jesus said to them. So a question is, who are the them that he is talking about? Well, if you look at the immediate context, you may think he's going back to verse 1. But in reality, it goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 9. Because we have a chapter division here, and unfortunately, this is a bad place for a chapter division. Because they're not inspired. And this is a very large event that is taking place all at one time to where the chapter division gives the impression that it's a new topic. And so chapter divisions were added to help us find things quickly, but they're not inspired and it can be a hindrance. And so the them here goes back to chapter 9 in verse 40 in which he is talking to the Pharisees. He has just healed the blind man um, throughout chapter 9, and the blind man then goes before the Pharisees because the Pharisees want to talk to him because it's been the Sabbath, and, they, and, and they're mad at Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath, and they want to hear the testimony from the blind man, and they end up excommunicating the blind man for being healed by Jesus, and throw them out of the synagogue. And now Jesus talks to them um, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 10. And so it's all one context. And so the them here are the religious leaders of Israel. They are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They are those who are full of Bible knowledge. They knew the Old Testament, but they were spiritually dead in their souls. And so hostility has been building throughout the Gospel of John. It's building with each miracle, with each claim, and it just grows until it just explodes when uh, Passover comes. And so this, hus- uh, um, this anger that they have to them um, begins to build up that by verse 39 of chapter, chapter 9, they're so angry But they can't seize him yet because John tells us that his time had not yet come. And so Jesus is going to be addressing this to the religious leaders. But thirdly, what you need to know, and John tells us what it is in verse 6, that this, this is an allegory. This is a figure of speech. He's using a picture to, to describe a spiritual reality. In verse 6, it tells us that Jesus gives us a, spirit, a, a figure of speech because they did not understand what he had been saying. So he had to try again. And so an allegory is a picture that has a second meaning. It's very similar to a parable, but it's much more. A parable has one central truth at its driving thrust. And you can get very, in trouble very quickly if you try to push the details in a parable. Matthew chapter 13 uh, tells us of the parable of the sower. And you know that there's a guy throwing seeds, some falls on the hard ground, some falls on the good ground, some on the rocky ground. That's that's a parable. Uh, There's a parable about the wheat and the tares. A parable has one main truth. But an allegory, it's a parable on steroids. The details go much deeper. Sorry about that. I wanted to tie myself so I wouldn't go long, and I don't know. I don't get it. So I guess we're, we're I'm on my own, but that's all right. That's not, that's not a good sign. 
but it's far more complex an allegory. There's a lot more going on. It's a figure of speech. It's a picture. If you understand the picture, you can begin to understand the spiritual reality. But fourthly, you need to know something about sheep raising in Israel. Because he's going to talk about sheep. He's going to talk about shepherd. He's, he's going to talk about danger that is around him. He's going to talk about pastor that the sheep needs and tending to the sheep. And so you just need to know something. And so, as you probably already know, Israel was, was known for its farming community. And so the, its, its primary thrust was um, animals. Because at the Judean plateau, it was very rocky. It wasn't suitable for growing crops, but it was very suitable for growing and raising of animals. And so there was enough grass that would be grown within the plateau for animals to go out and to graze. And so it's a sheep um, kind of area. And so you also need, need to, begin, be, to begin to know about sheep is that sheep needed to be housed somewhere. And within this one passage, it is going to be talking about two different sheepfolds. In verses 1 through 6, it's going to give a picture of a community sheepfold, a large area to where it contained many sheep from many different shepherds. And so at night when the shepherds were, uh, were, were to come home, they would bring their sheep to the community um, sheepfold. That's where they all would be. And so um, they would bring, uh, bring their sheep there, and they would be stored overnight. There was a gatekeeper who would close the door and to watch over things. And so that's where the community sheepfold would be. But in verses 7 through 18, there's a second sheepfold. This sheepfold was found in the countryside. This is where the sheep owner or the shepherd would house his sheep as they were out grazing and they may have needed to stay overnight within an area. That's where he would keep his sheep. It would have high walls and there would be an an entrance. The community sheepfold had a door that would close at night. But in the countryside, there was no door, but the uh, shepherd would become the door to keep the sheep out and and to keep the predators, uh, it would would keep the sheep in and the predators out. And so that is the picture of what is going on here. There's a community sheepfold. This large community is going to represent apostate Israel in which apostate Israel, they would all be mixed up together, and the true shepherd would come and then take his sheep out of apostate Israel. And so the, um, the true shepherd and his sheep would be the elect of God, chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. And so in, in verse 29, we find that they are entrusted to the shepherd. In verses five, uh, 3 through 5, they hear the shepherd's voice, and they follow him because they know the shepherd's voice. This is God's effectual call of the shepherds to his elect sheep. They're the only ones who recognize his voice because he is their shepherd. The other sheep from the other flocks, they ignore the stranger's voice. They only hear the voice of their own shepherd. But the true shepherd calls out his, his own flock, and the sheep hears and responds only to his voice. They are given ears to hear, and they hear what the other sheep do not. The shepherds even has their own name for his sheep. He knows them so intimately that he calls them by their own name. And so whatever name that might be, it could be Fluffy, it could be Blackie, it could be, you know, uh, Honorary, but he knows his sheep by name. And so he is a, as we shall see next time, whenever next time is, next time that he is going to be the good shepherd. He's not just just an average shepherd, but he's going to be the good shepherd. And so as a shepherd, he's going to not leave them in in the apostate fold, but he's going to lead them out into his own fold. 
And he's going to lead them in to protect them, to give them access. He's going to provide for them. And so this is the picture that is at, um, at the heart of what he is saying when he makes the claim in verse 7 that I am the door of the sheep. And so to get to his sheep in his fold in the countryside, you're going to have to go through the shepherd to get to his sheep. But by day, he is there to provide, to lead them into green pastures and still waters. He gives his sheep life. And not just an average life, but as we shall see, it's going to be an abundant life. It's a full life. It's an overflowing life. And then at night, he leads them into protection, and he leaves them out for provision. He is going to be responsible for all their needs to such a place to where he's going to lay his life down for his sheep if need be. And so with his, with his providing, he's not going to be cheap with his giving, but he's going to be overflowing with his giving. And so this one passage is a passage of many contrasts. There's over 30 different items going on in how things are, con, uh, are just contrasted. But one of the things that stands out in this passage is that there, are, there is the true shepherd and there are false shepherds. There's a true flock and there are other flocks. And so when he makes this statement, and he's going to repeat it again in verse 9, it is a profound statement. He doesn't want his audience to miss the point because he's going to say it twice, verily, verily. And you see in verse 1 and you see it in verse 7. Whenever you see a truly, truly or verily, verily is Jesus' way of saying, I don't want you to miss it. This is important. It's almost like a bullhorn, you know, um, to where or, or, or the pastor sort of will go like that to wake up everybody. Well, it's the same Thing. You know, this is the important part. If you're going to go home with anything, go home with this. And so that is what he is going to be saying in verse 7. I am the door of the sheep. And as he is saying it, there are seven things with this passage that I want to underscore for you and have you consider. And when you do, you will see that this is a great passage in the statement that he makes. First of all, when he makes this statement, I am the door of the sheep. Uh, firstly, it is a statement of our Lord's divinity. And as we had said two other times, when he makes this statement, I am, it's so easy just to gloss over, I am the door of the sheep. But for his audience, they knew exactly what he was saying. It goes back to Exodus chapter 3. You don't have to go there, but it's Moses and the burning bush, where Moses Moses, Moses, is standing before the burning bush, and the bush is not consumed. God tells him to remove his sandals and tells him that he needs to go back to Egypt. And Moses asks him, what name shall I use to tell them who, who sent me? And God says to Moses in uh, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me. In the Old Testament, that is the tetragrammaton. That is the four-letter word that describes God. I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. It comes from the word to be. It means I is, if you want a bad vernacular about it. God is stating that I am all that there is. He is complete. He is absolutely independent and self-sufficient. Theologians gives it a title that, uh, that talks about the um, aseity of God. He's not dependent on anyone. He is all that, that there is because he created all that, that there is. Whatever there is, he is and he lacks nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. And throughout our Lord's ministry, he uses this one term to help underscore, and his audience understood what he was saying. He was equating himself to God. Now, you don't have 
um, that in every other religion. Every other religion, when they look upon Jesus, they don't view him as part of the Godhead. When Mr. Mormon comes to your door, his idea of Jesus is he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. When Mr. Jehovah Witness comes to your door, he believes that Jesus is the archangel Michael. If you talk to some of the New Agers at at work, they believe Jesus is just an enlightened messenger. But throughout Jesus' ministry, he kept underscoring the fact that he was God in the flesh, to where he says, if you've seen me, you have seen who? The Father. He equates himself with God, to where, as we shall see, they, they want to stone him for blasphemy. And so Jesus is going to be saying that he is God in the flesh. So much so, I want you to look at one place. Go to John chapter 5 for a moment. Because this is one of the passages where you can turn to when Mr. Jehovah Witness or Mr. Mormon comes to your home to help underscore the fact that Jesus is God. Because if they ever do come to your door, you only talk about two things. You don't care about the 144,000, whomever. You, you, you talk about... Uh, who Jesus was, and what does it mean for someone to be saved. That's all you talk about, because that's the only thing that matters through the course of eternity. But there are five things in John chapter 5 that stands out, because Jesus is going to make five claims of his deity. In verses um, 17 and 18, he is going to equate himself to God in his person. Look what John gives us. He says, and he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So God has been working, but now I take up the cause for the father, and I'm going to work. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to what? To God and God's person. And so here he, he, Jesus says that he's equal to God in his person. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus is equal to God in his works, in what he accomplishes. Look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something. He sees the Father doing, that's, his, that, that's the Father's work, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that, or resulting in, you will marvel. So Jesus equates himself to God in his work. Thirdly, in verse 21, we have, we have the third claim. Jesus is equal to God in his power and sovereignty. Look what he says in verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Jesus has the power and the authority over life. Only God has that, the power of, to give life. But here we, have, um, here we see that he has the power over life and death itself, and he gives it to whom he wishes. So he's equating himself with God in his power and his sovereignty. Look at verse 22. Jesus equates himself with God in his judgment. For not even the Father, verse 22, judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. It is Jesus who will judge everyone's sin. If Jesus was, was just a mere man, mere men can't judge someone else's sin. Only God can judge sin. And so Jesus equates himself with God because he is given the ability to judge all. And then lastly, in verse 23, we, we see the fifth element, that Jesus equates himself with God in his honor. 
Look at verse 23. So that, or resulting in, is another way to put that, all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, we're told time and time again that God is a jealous God and we're only to worship him. And here Jesus is saying in equating himself with God to receive the honor that the Father gets and that he can get it too. And if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. So it underscores in five claims that Jesus is God. So when he makes this statement back in chapter 11, they know exactly what he is saying. It was a statement of our Lord's deity, that he is the second member of the Trinity. He's a second member of the Godhead. Jesus Christ was the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. But not only that, secondly, not only is a statement of his divinity, it was a statement of his exclusivity. Look at verse 7. Again, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. When you begin to sort of study the Bible, you begin to realize very quickly, words mean something. It's just not random. There is a definite article here. He is the door. The door, if you want to put some emphasis on it. And so when Jesus is saying that, he is saying that there are no other doors. He is the only door. There isn't a a door for Israel and another one for the Gentiles. He's the door. There isn't a door for, for, for a Buddhist and there isn't a door for a Muslim and there isn't a door for a Mormon. There's only one door. There isn't a side door. There isn't a back door. There isn't a front door. There's only one door. And Jesus says here that he's not just pointing to the door. He is saying that I am the door. To have access to the Father, you have to go through the door. He is that door. And so he's pointing to himself, underscoring the fact that there is no other way to heaven but through him. And we live in a society to where that's foreign. Just to bring that up, you can crank up people's anger to the nth degree because they like to think that just as long as you're sincere in whatever you believe in, your sincerity is enough. Whether whether or not it's the happy hunting ground in in the sky, you believe in the big power, you you don't eat plants or whatever that may be, that's, that's enough for whatever is going to be taking place. But Jesus says that every other religion is false, but you have to go through him to have access to the Father. So his statement itself is very limiting and exclusive. But thirdly, I want you to notice the word door. It's a statement of accessibility. I am the door of the sheep. You can have access to the Father if you go through the door. A shepherd calls his name by sheep, and he, as we find here, leaves them out of the community sheepfold to... That's why I need to go wireless. You need to go into his private sheepfold. No man can ever make this statement because he could not be that door, only Jesus can. He is not a shepherd that brings the sheep to the door, but he is that door. He is the only access point. And the implication in what he is going to be making throughout this one passage is that you were born outside of the door, outside of the kingdom. And to be part of God's kingdom, you have to access that door. And that's exactly what John tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you remember. Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's nice that you're born, but guess what? You've got to be born again. And so in his mind, it's like, well, how do I I go back to my mom? It's just not going to happen. But there needs to be a spiritual rebirth to be born again. 
And so this was not the only time that Jesus made this claim in his earthly ministry that he was the only way to enter. Look at, if you would, at Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. In Matthew chapter 7, we have this other picture about entering, of entrance, and that's through the narrow gates. And you probably know the passage already. Here we have in Matthew 13, uh, 7, verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad. That leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it, for, uh, enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So there are two gates and there are two, two paths. One path is narrow, which goes through a narrow gate. One path is wide and goes through a wide gate. Many go through the wide gate. Few go through the narrow gate. So when his hearers heard that, they understood. <laughs> you got rush hour. Which place would you rather be? You know, you want to be on the wide part because you could get home a whole lot quicker. But that way leads to destruction. There's the narrow path through the narrow gates. And so Jesus is, is saying that he is the only way to enter, and that way is very narrow. That way provides access if those, to those who are invited. And so it is through this door in which he is giving us here in John chapter 10 that he is telling his people that there is accessibility. And it's interesting because through this door... Not only is there accessibility, but it is an open door for all who would like to enter. It's not just for a certain group of people. The invitation goes out to everyone, as we shall see. But it's, in, it's interesting because the statement goes on to say one more thing. It is also a statement of, and I think I made up a word, but it cleared my spell check. It's a statement of limitability. Try spelling that out. It's a statement that limits. Jesus said to them, I am the door of the sheep. Our context is telling us that there are two groups of sheep. One group hears the voice and the other one does not. Our Lord is the door of a certain group of sheep. Goats, there are no goats that enter in through this door, just his sheep. And not all sheep are those who enter in. And so the question is, who are this sheep? Well, it's interesting because if you go through the entire chapter, the context tells us who the sheep are. If you look at verse 3, the sheep that are mentioned here who gets to have access to, to the door, to the place of privilege, to the place of protection, they are the ones who hear the voice of the shepherd. It goes on to say that the sheep are those he calls by name by the shepherd. Also says that they are those who are led out of the fold. If you jump down to verse 4, the sheep are those who the shepherd puts forth. He brings them to the proper pasture. It goes on to say that they are those who know his voice. Verse 5. They are those who do not follow the stranger or the stranger's voice. Jump down to verse 7. The sheep are those who enter through the door and are saved. In verse 11, they are those who the good shepherd lays down his life for. In verse 14, they are those who are known by the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. And have a relationship with him. In verse 26, um, they are those that are distinguished from, other, from unbelievers. In verse 27, they are those who are following Jesus. In verse 28, they are those who receive eternal life. And then in verse 29, they are those who are held securely by the Father. So the context gives us who the sheep are. 
There's a criteria that comes with his sheep to know who are his sheep in a part of his fold and who are not. So much so that it begins to frustrate the religious leaders. Because look at verse 24. They, they tell him point blank, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. We need to know. In verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are what? One. So Jesus makes it very clear to them that who his sheep are. I want you to look at verse 8. Not only that, but it is a statement against charlatans. It's a warning against the charlatans, against the false shepherds, if you would, against the hired shepherds. In verse 8, it says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. The primary people that Jesus is addressing to are the religious leaders of Israel. And it's interesting because he's not being nicey-nice here. He cuts to the chase and calls them out. He tells them that they are thieves and robbers, and he uses the present tense. They are thieves and robbers. Not they were thieves and robbers, or, not, or they will be thieves and robbers, but they are thieves and robbers. It's interesting because you may not have ever thought there's a difference between a thief and a robber. Thieves are those who steal by stealth. They do it quietly when no one is looking. But a robber, he steals from those by force when you are looking. You get robbed. Thieves steal by deception. Robbers steal by violence. And he calls these peoples and confronts them that they are just hired hands. They're thieves and robbers. That these hired hands stole the glory from God. They didn't help people get to God. They kept people from God by their legalism, by their own made-up standard. That they were fleecers, fleecers of the flock. These people were the ones that made the temple of of God a robber's den. They twisted and distorted Scripture. And when Jesus confronted them time and time again, he, he, he wasn't nice to them because they were blind leaders of the blind. When Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he saw, and he saw Jerusalem before the cross, it says that Jesus wept because he wanted to be like a mother chicken and to protect them, and he knew what was coming. And the religious leaders did nothing to help, help them come to a closer relationship with God. But they kept, they kept them from coming to a, close, a closer relationship with him, the promised one. And so we see from verse 1 that these leaders were trying to enter the fold through another way. Only, sh- only shepherds were to go through the door, but these hired shepherds were trying to go through another way to go over the wall, to have their own way in because they had no true care for the sheep. They entered unlawfully to steal the sheep away from the fold because they were not their rightful owners. And so in verse 2, we get to see the contrast here to what a real shepherd was compared to them. The real shepherd entered through the door But these other ones, they were spiritual frauds. They were charlatans dressed as shepherds, out to do their own agenda. But in verse 8, 
we see that the sheep did not hear them. Also in verse 5, a stranger, they will simply not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This gives us confidence to know that for those who have placed their trust in Christ, there's no way for us to lose our salvation. Because those false shepherds are there, but they don't follow them. So if one begins to hear the voice of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, the founder of Mormonism, they don't follow after that. That's a stranger's voice. If you would hear the voice of Charles Taze Russell, the founder for Jehovah Witness, they don't follow them. If one were to hear the voice of Muhammad, they wouldn't follow them. They would flee because they don't hear his voice. If one would hear the voice of Mary Baker Eddy, the founder for Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science, one would not follow them. If one were even to hear the voice of the Pope himself, they would not follow them because um, they would not hear his voice. Look at verse 3 for a moment. To him the doorkeeper opens. The sheep hears the true shepherd's voice, and he calls his sheep by, um, by name, and he leads them out. And so we get to see that, the, that there is confidence for each one of us to take, that even if we're forced to recant our faith, we will not follow another shepherd's because our Lord will be there to, to give us grace to make a stand. And so we, we see a, a sixth thing that I want to point out. When our Lord makes a statement, I am the door of the sheep, it is a statement of invitation. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, it is an invitation for those who hear it to come. He repeats himself in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. What a great picture to where that door is wide open for those who come in to enter. There are a number of different metaphors for one hearing Christ and getting saved. In John chapter 1, we have a metaphor. Um, we find that one who receives Christ. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, we have another picture of to come to Christ. Also in John chapter 6, to believe in Christ is to be saved. Also, he goes on to have an eating picture. If you eat of Christ, you will be saved. And to drink of Christ... And now we have another metaphor, if you enter through the door. And so the question that sort of comes out to each one of us, have you gone through the door of Christ? You see, I don't know. I'm, I'm the new guy here. I, uh, I've known most of you for a little bit, but I, I don't know. Have you gone through the door? I know people go to church for, through their entire life and they look like they're, uh, they're religious on the outside, but on the inside, there is no true change because they've never come through the door. Have you gone through the door? It's not enough just to admire the door. It's not just enough to approach the door. You must decide to go through that door. And it is a narrow door. To where you, when you enter, the Lord will give you attention. One enters one at a time. And you leave all your baggage behind as you enter in. And he will take care of you. That's why our Lord says in Luke chapter 13 and verse 22, it says, strive to enter the narrow gate. And so have you entered through that door? Have you put your faith in Christ? If you were to die today, would you confidently say, I know where I would go? I do, because the Bible tells us that we can know that we can have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. One has to put their faith and trust in Christ's death, 
his burial, his resurrection. That is why we are about to partake at the table, is to remember that. That we remember that I come to God with nothing. But when I saw my sin, I saw how my sin uh, kept me from God. I repented of my sin and I turned to Christ. And so for some of you, you may think that you are religious, but you have never entered that door. You think you're one of the sheep, but in reality you are not because your trust is in something else. Maybe there's someone here who you're on the coattails of your parents because your parents have always gone to church and they dragged you. I mean, they have taken you to church to, to be there. And you've gone through the classes and you've done all of this. But you haven't entered through the door. You have to see your sin. Turn to the shepherd. And he will invite you in. One last thing through the few moments that we have, have left. This is for those who have entered through the door. The, um, when our Lord makes the statement, I am the door of the sheep, it is a statement that yields immense blessing. And this is the part I tend to forget. Because I just look at the struggles at work or the, the struggles with my car or whatever struggle it may be. But our Lord is there to say, when you enter through the door, that he is the door. He gives access. He gives protection. But it yields blessing for his sheep. And there are three things that I just want to point out. First, first of all, look at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will what? Be saved. That word saved is a tremendous word. It, it's, it's a word that... Evangelical Christianity, they sort of want to jettison, but it, it, it means to be rescued. It means to be delivered. It means to be saved. We were in the domain of darkness, but he has transferred us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. It, when he makes this statement, it is made with a statement of certainty. It's not one of hope that you may be saved, but it's, it's the avenue to where you will be saved. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Saved from What? And his main point of the book is just this. And he, and he says that we are saved by God, we're saved for God, and we are saved from God. Jot down this one verse that has all three within two verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul, uh, Paul writes this talking about the Thessalonian church. He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of God. Our Lord delivers us. We're saved by God. We're set apart for God. And we're saved from the wrath of God. Of God. Steve Lawson puts it this way. He says that there is only one person that can save you from God, and that is God Himself. It is the grace of God who must save you from the wrath of God. It is the Son of God who must save you from His own judgment. So when it says you will be saved, He will be saved from the final judgment. He will be saved from the damnation and eternal hell. He will be saved from torment and divine wrath. And so we are saved from God judging us for the sin that I willfully committed. You all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so all those who enter the door will never have, never be condemned again. Romans 8 and verse 1. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The end of Romans 8. And so we are saved from God. But yet, secondly, we are, when we enter through the door, it yields safety. I am the door in verse 9. If anyone enters through me, 
He will be saved and will go in and out. Back at this time, this word in and out would represent that if it was a time of peace and your army was strong, you'd go in and out of the city without fear. And so it, it, it was a picture and a phrase that were used that meant security. It meant freedom. It meant protection. And if danger were to come on the scene, one would just go back inside the walls and be, and be protected. And so you will be saved. You can go in and out whenever you please because the shepherd is there to provide. There's nothing that you can ever doubt that the shepherd will ever leave you or forsake you. And then lastly, and this is my favorite one, when our Lord makes this statement, it yields satisfaction. You'll be saved, you'll go in and out and find pasture. Not just normal grass, but the best grass. You will find pasture. And then look at the end. I came that they may have life and have it. And I love that word, abundantly. When we come to Christ so many times, we feel like we're spiritual paupers. But he is there to give us an abundant life. He is there to give you spiritual strength. He equips you with spiritual gifts. He he is there to use your life to help form eternity in the lives of those around you as you live for him. He is there and and he's not cheap with it. That word abundant means super abundant in quantity. It means superior in quality. It means to overflow. Paul talks about a lot to where we get grace upon grace, where he lavishes just grace on us. He is not cheap at all. And so our Lord gives life. He gives spiritual life, divine life, new life, eternal life, unending life. And it begins the moment we come to him. Not just in the future when we stand in glory, but now. Our lives are changed. There is purpose to bring glory to him and to lift his name up. And so the question is, do you know peace like a river that floods your soul? Do you know joy like a fountain that overflows your heart? Do you know love like an ocean? Do you enjoy green pastures which only he can provide? Do do you enjoy quiet waters in which he brings you? Do you let him restore your soul? Do you walk with his guidance? So when the valley of the shadow of death emerges, do you fear no evil? Does your cup overflow? Because surely surely goodness And mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the sheepfold of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23, just sort of reworded some. Because he is our shepherd, and we shall not want. And so with that in mind, we come to verse 11, but that's for next time whenever that is, but where are, it's even better where he, he, he picks up from here and says, I am just not an average shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. I'm, I'm the best. And we learn even more from his statement. So let's pray. Father, so much more could be said, but as we begin to partake at the, at the table, we stand amazed in the grace that you even provide for us Because even those who have entered through the door, how often do we not live for you in the way that we should? How often, Father, do we bring shame and disgrace for you? For thoughts can just even flood my mind often to remind me how I'm still battling with sin. But it is my desire to bring your name glory to put you on display through in my life so that filters out the junk and it filters on the things which are eternal. For I take my eyes off of myself and I put them on needs and opportunities that are around us. 
And I put them especially on those who do not know you so I can share with them the glories of, of entering the door because you are the door of protection. You are the door of access. And it is through, you, through that door we have access to the Father because it, it yields immense blessing. And if I don't tell them, they will never know the blessings of God and they will be following those thieves and robbers who kill, who destroy, and who slaughter. And so, Father, as we begin to partake, let us begin to see how great of a door you are. And if there's someone here today that has never entered that door, and their hearts are screaming inside, and their fits are curled, that I won't enter that door. Let them see the need to turn from their sin and to turn to you. For you are there with outstretched hands to forgive those sins, now, present, and future. So, Father, as we part, uh, begin to partake of the, of the cup and of the bread, let us see the need to confess our own sin and to see the need to live for you. So thank you, Father, in what you're going to be doing.